Leviticus chapter 22, verses 1 through 16, I promise, is our sermon passage. And our complimentary passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 through 11, 1. So if you would please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 22, and in honor of God's word, please stand. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has an emission of semen, whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, She may eat of her father's food, yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, and continuing in the reading of God's word. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves. When I say the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 
eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat of it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of the conscience. I do not mean your your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we come to this word that has stood for the ages, that comes from your Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts and make us alive to it? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So, there was a Roman emperor that you've probably heard of named Nero. Nero was a bad guy. Nero had an advisor when he first started out, and his advisor was named Seneca. And Seneca is known as the father of Stoicism, the philosophy of Stoicism. So Seneca said that the life that is well-lived, the life that is purposeful and well-lived is a life of self-discipline. We have to discipline our bodies, we have to discipline our minds, we have to discipline ourselves. And it was so close to the Christian message, and he lived at the same time as the Apostle Paul, that somebody came up with a bright idea of forging a series of letters that supposedly were between Seneca and Paul, where they both compliment each other and tell each other how great the other one is and how the other one sees his point and yada yada. These, this forgery, this set of forged letters, was in the church for well over, I would guess, a thousand years. I think it was fairly recently, I think it was in the 1800s that it was definitively determined to be a forgery. Some other historian can correct me on that one. I say all that to say this. Seneca says things that sound so biblical. Discipline the discipline of the mind, the discipline of the body, the the calling that you and I have to be self-disciplined, to be governed. The problem is, of course, that Seneca doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't understand anything about the perfect after which we are to pattern ourselves. 
But he does say this. He says this about his own philosophy of stoicism, of self-discipline. Seneca says this. He says, the way is long and laborious if it is a way of precept. It is short and helpful if it's a way of pattern. Self-discipline, walking in God's commands, doing all that you do to the glory of God is long and it is laborious if it's just more rules. It's short and it's helpful if we see the pattern after whom our lives are to be transformed. That's exactly what all of this has been in Leviticus. It's a series of patterns. It's a series of pictures that are given to us. They're given to us not so that we can look at them and say, oh, that's what righteousness looks like. If I get unclean here, I don't eat there. And if I eat this, I don't. That must be what righteousness... From the very first hearers, they knew better than that. Think of, think of the prophets who continually say, cry out to God, I'm the last one left. And what does God say? <laughs> You've got no idea. You've got no idea. I have given patterns. I've given patterns and my people will see in those patterns the way of life and walk therein. And if my people see in these things nothing but precepts, nothing but rules, it is the way of death. And there's a beautiful pattern that's given to us in this description here in the first 16 verses of Leviticus chapter 22. So I want to look in three ways. There's two that come out of this text, and then we'll go to our New Testament text for the third one. But the first is this picture that's given to us of holy hands, clean hands. And secondly, the picture that is given to us of holy fellowship. Holy hands and holy fellowship. And then as we move to 1 Corinthians, we'll incorporate this in thirdly, living this out. But the holy hands, notice notice how important this is to God. If you look at verse 3, Leviticus chapter 22 and verse 3. Anyone who will approach God in an unclean manner will be cut off. Now that's significant. Just pause and think for a hot second. Every Jewish man is cut into the covenant with God. To cut a covenant involves the shedding of blood. 
And for everyone who has cut into covenant with God, if they approach that God in a cavalier manner, God says, I will cut you. What a terrifying, holy, horrifying reality. To approach God in a cavalier manner. It it does make sense, though, if you think about it. Because, beloved, would you like for God to approach you in a cavalier manner? We worship, in many ways, the God we reflect. And if our relationship with God is a cavalier relationship, it is often because we believe that God has a pretty cavalier relationship with us. I show up every now and then, we're good, he's good, I'm good. Woohoo. Try that out, brother. Try that out, sister, when you get that phone call from the doctor. That scan doesn't look good. How cavalier do you want your God to be? In that moment. Try that out when you get the phone call from the police. There was an accident. How cavalier and shallow do you want your God to be in that moment? God simply calls forth from us the same commitment that he gives to us. And it involves even in this microcosm of the priest in his home. A recognition of the holiness of God. The other thing that you see in this in these holy hands, later on, uh, verses 5 and, and around in there, 5 and 6, the, the, the priest who is faithful in his duties is a priest who would regularly be unclean. He would be the one going and ministering to the broken, to those who are sick. He would be the one that would be the hands of God, the minister of God in those situations. So your faithful daily priest would be ceremonially unclean several, several times throughout his month at least. But this would be a fairly common thing. If every time I went to the hospital, I was not allowed to touch the holy things of God until evening, it would be relatively often. Andrew Bonar comments on this. And he says, the priest, like Hezekiah, was told that Although accepted, he must tread carefully. That he must feel the weight and the burden of his inner pollution. That God gave him this command for a season. You are ceremonially unclean until evening. And he was to meditate on the reality of that as the hunger pangs grew. He was to meditate on the reality 
of bearing the pollution. The holiness that God calls from His people, the holiness that God calls for from His priest, it is not a cavalier attitude. This is someone who would be needing to be take great care. Great care not only what they eat, but what others eat. This is someone who would have to take very great care. Notice, there's a, there's a verse in here, He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts. So what does that mean that the priest eats in terms of meat? The only meat that he can eat is the meat that is without blemish. Sacrificed at the tabernacle. That lamb without blemish. That bull without blemish. Those portions that are given to the priests are the portions of perfection. And the priest cannot take of imperfect food. The holiness and the care which which fills the atmosphere of the priest's home. It bleeds over into our second point and this holy fellowship, this holy communion that we see. That's particularly in verses 10 through 16. Only those who are members of the priest's household, his immediate household. Now, that may not sound as significant to those who live in a modern Western nuclear family context. But if you have any experience in what we would call traditional cultures... The old cultures. Mine, my roots are the South. But it's the same in the South as it is in Africa, as it is in any other traditional culture, which is we all live right next to each other. We're all related to each other. And we do nothing but gossip constantly. We're in each other's homes all the time. And we, we know everybody's business. That's, that's because we're all limited in geography. We don't pick up one summer and move to California and then pick up at the end of the summer and move back to Northern Virginia. We're, we're all in one spot forever. But these traditional cultures involve an awful lot of family, of cousins, of interconnections in the home. So now, let's turn back to our scene, which is our priest taking great care to say, you, you, and you can have this portion. You, you, and you need to have that portion. Taking great care within the home, not obviously trying not to offend. Notice also it is the responsibility of the layperson. If a layperson accidentally eats... There's a significant phrase in there. If a layperson accidentally eats, he's to add one-fifth. Why is that significant? That's the penalty for fraud. He has defrauded God. We've seen it earlier in Leviticus, that you are to add beyond what it is that you defrauded the other person. And now here, he, in his cavalier manner, 
in his looking over the table and going, you know, your priest flank steak is in much better condition. (laughs) I would like a slice of that, please. He's defrauding God. God takes these patterns so seriously. So very seriously. You can't read through Leviticus without going, yeah, man, there's a lot of, if you do this obscure thing, you'll be cut off. If you don't do this obscure thing, you'll be cut off. It just seems like God is, is, is constantly saying, I'm looking for reasons to flick you. But what he's doing is he's laying down this perfect pattern. He's laying down the perfect pattern for the person who is reconciled to God. The perfect pattern for the Israelite family. Later, as you know, in Deuteronomy, he'll say, you shall speak of these things when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. We've already seen in Leviticus in your, in your hunting, in, in all these things, all the ways in which we are called personally and privately, in our families, publicly, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's it. It is so simple. But beloved, when you see this pattern... And you think, oh, good grief, I'm rolling my eyes. What a bunch of rules. When you're too lazy to look through the pattern to the garment that is being revealed here of a family that is around holiness, of a person that is seeking to do all things to the glory of God. When you look through the pattern to the garment, beloved, the garment is beautiful. The garment is nothing less than that of Christ Jesus. The garment is nothing less than he who is holy and he who brings us into holy and perfect communion. And so then, how do we take this obscure, ancient thing and live in our lives? That's the third and final point. And I find it fascinating that Paul takes up this issue. What can you eat and what can you not eat? Paul takes this kind, this, this very section here. The things that are being dealt with in this section. You are not to eat that which is unclean. You may only eat that which is clean. Paul says, listen, it's all God's. Clearly, this is a pattern. Paul comes to you and says, this is a pattern. (laughs) It's all God's. All the meat belongs to God. But did you hear what it is that Paul wants to drive you to? The love for your fellow neighbor. Out of love, I'm not going to offend. Paul's going to go on in 1 Corinthians 
to speak of the centrality of love. How love is what brings us together at the table. How, how, how love is to be preferred over any other virtue. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love passage. Now abides these three. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This same one who says to love one another takes something as basic as a meal and says, use this as a pattern. Something as basic as a meal. How can I love? And it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that I think this is still an issue. But if we approach it from the standpoint of, of seeking to live out loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And if we're seeking to do that in the family of God, if we're seeking to do that in our own homes, if I'm seeking to do that on my knees, if we're doing that in our marriages, in our family, if we're doing that in the church, how glorious was Israel when they were doing it? People from around the world came to hear Solomon, the source of wisdom. People sent the great King David gifts. It's a light to the nations. And it's a light to the nations in this weird way of love. Not military conquest, but love. Behold what manner of love He has set upon us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And beloved, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. But we know that when we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And that's that promise that is ours now. In this desire for holiness, in this integrity for holiness, yes, we see our failures. Yes, we see the ways in which at home we're not in holy hands and holy fellowship and holy communion. We do see our own failures. If you will look through the pattern, look at, lay that pattern upon your life, then you will see that sense of failure. But you know what this section of the law is called? We, we typically divide God's law, God's commandments, into three sections. There's the moral law, which is eternally binding upon all men and women. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. There is the judicial law, 
which is that which is given to the nation-state of Israel, and when the nation-state of Israel ceased to exist, that judicial law likewise ceased to exist, except as the general fairness of those judicial laws apply. And then there's the ceremonial law. These laws that are ceremonies. So as you look at this section, what would you say this is? Would you say this is moral? We're not bound forever not to eat this or not to eat that. So it's not part of God's moral law. It's not part of God's judicial law. It clearly is not something that's basically, hey, build a parapet around your roof. (laughs) It's the ceremonial. It is the ceremonial law. These are the ceremonies that we're looking at here. And that's significant because the ceremonial law is taken up for us in Christ Jesus. Christ is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. And so all of these ceremonies are designed to draw our eye upward to Jesus Christ. The way is long and laborious if it is a way of precept. It's short and helpful if it's after a pattern. Beloved, Our Jesus Christ, our perfect Lamb of God, has given to us not just the perfect pattern. Think of of all the people throughout the years, throughout the centuries, who used these patterns and, and, and saw them only dimly. They knew they were patterns. They knew there was nothing uniquely holy about this person eating this or that. They they understood they were patterns, but they weren't exactly clear what they were patterns of. But clearly God takes it important. He says you're going to be cut off if you break it. We now have them perfectly, clearly, opened up to us so that we can behold Christ in them. So that the hands that we come to his table with are holy hands. We lift up holy hands. The meal that we eat is a participation in his holiness. Let us pray. Father, as we have seen our Savior in your glorious word. We've seen those patterns, those grid lines laid down, and we see the beautiful Savior who emerges. We see the pattern and the grid line laid down of your bread and your cup, and we see the glorious image that emerges. Father, our heartfelt prayer, our earnest prayer, is let our lives be that pattern. Nourish us. Feed us. Grow us. In Christ's name. Amen.